Turn to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Let's pray. Father, we return once again to this passage about Noah. And we read in this passage amazing things about this man, about the things that he did, about the righteousness of his life. And Father, as we read those things, we are struck by our own unrighteousness. We are struck by how we struggle in this life. And so how is it, how can it be that a man like Noah could have these things said of him and yet here we are? I pray, Father, as we look into your word and examine this question this morning, pray that you would speak to us and help us to understand the source of Noah's righteousness and our own. So I ask that you would Speak to us by your Spirit through your Word this morning, that you would minister to us in this time. Pray in Jesus' name, amen. Last time we were together, we looked through the entirety of the flood, and it's a long section, and there's a whole lot there, and we wanted to get a broad picture of what happens in the flood narrative there in Genesis, and so... Uh, We went rather quickly, and as we went quickly, we hit on the main uh, highlights and kind of looked at the the trajectory of the whole thing, but we noticed in doing so that we didn't get to dig down and look at the details, and uh, those details are often very important, and and, uh, one of the details that we uh, mentioned but did not dig down into last week was Noah and his righteousness. The language used of Noah here is impressive. He was an impressive man. And uh, he was uh, righteous, he was blameless, and he walked with God. And we know about Noah, of course, that he made this short list of those who were rescued through the flood, there being only seven others and largely on account of him. So he made that short list, but he he is uh, an exceptional man. He's right up there, actually, with, uh, with Daniel and with Job as some of the Uh, godliest men in the Old Testament. And so, last time we went rather quickly and we mentioned his righteousness, but we did not discuss how he got there or what that meant. And so, uh, today as we dig into this, we want to raise the question that was raised by some of you. How did Noah become righteous? We hear the testimony about him. We hear what kind of a man he was. How did he get there? How did Noah become righteous? And of course, as a room that has, uh, is filled with Christians, we also ask the question, okay, how can I become righteous? And so we want to tackle both of those uh, questions today. And to do so, we're going to be back in Genesis chapter 6. We're going to look at uh, just a few uh, words here, just a couple of verses uh, to talk here about how was it that Noah became righteous. And it's 
really buried right there in the text. First of all, we see that grace is the source of his righteousness. Verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. We've talked about this word favor, that it's the same word for grace, that Noah received grace from God. And of course, we notice at this point that uh, this is about the first thing we learn about him. I mean, we, we can look uh, earlier and uh, see some things that are said about him uh, when he was born uh, at the end there of chapter 5. And, and there was a kind of a prophetic statement about him that he's one who shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. And then, uh, and then the next thing we learn is that after he was 500 years old, he fathered Shem and Ham and Japheth. And that's it. We're, we're told very basic stuff about him. We don't yet know what he's done. But the first thing uh, that is introduced to us in verse 8 as we begin to talk about him is that he found favor in the eyes of the Lord. He found grace with God. That's the first thing we learn about him. That's the, the first aspect before he's done anything, before he's accomplished anything, which he's going to accomplish all manner of things. Yet he found favor with God. And we need not, uh, we dare not skip over that, that fact. His favor with the Lord, His grace that He had found with the Lord. You see, there are competing understandings of how one can be declared righteous before God, how one can be uh, at peace with God and, and have the righteousness required to uh, have right relationship with God. And one understanding uh, starts with us doing better and better, accomplishing certain things, and we, we finish those tasks or we, we complete that list or whatever it is, we accomplish something. And then finally, when we have achieved a righteousness, we are declared righteous before God. And the biblical notion has it the other way around. The biblical notion recognizes what we talked about in Sunday school class today, that though we are created in the image of God, there's, there is amazing capacity and relationship possible between God and man, yet we are also fallen. And so the, this whole process begins with God giving His grace. And by His grace, He declares someone to be righteous. That's how that begins, and that's what we see play out here with Noah himself, that he is declared to be righteous in God's sight. It's as if it were a courtroom, and there's a declaration made that here is this man. I am declaring him, says God, to be righteous. Of course, you and I know that that requires that there be a righteousness. God can't pretend as if we were righteous. He can't just overlook our sin and, and say, well, yeah, I know they're in this category, but I really just want to treat them as if they're righteous. He can't just do that on its own. This is not legal fiction. And of course, that's where Christ comes in, that we have thousands of years later, we read about in the New Testament about Jesus who comes and he lives a righteous lifestyle and dies uh, the death of a sinner, though he himself was not that sinner, paying the penalty for sin that was not his own, but was mine. And so that by faith in Christ, my sin is placed on him and punished, and I receive his righteousness credited to my account. And so that's how justification works in the Bible, that the righteousness of Christ, which he himself has earned, is credited to the sinner, and thus we are declared to be righteous. 
Well, so our task today is to look at that and see how in the life of Noah, that statement, that declaration in the courtroom, as it were, that Noah is righteous in God's sight, how did that play out? Because we read in the passage about his righteousness, his blamelessness. How did that come about? How did Noah become righteous? Well, at this point, we want to notice that the most noteworthy thing about this very noteworthy man is that he was the recipient of God's grace. That's what the author wants us to know right off the bat. In contrast to and in the, the context of all of the sinfulness of humanity uh, in which he lived, that point in history, yet here was a man who found favor, grace with God. So grace, we will see, is the source of his righteousness. And then secondly, looking at verse 9, we see that godliness is the result of that justifying grace. Look at verse 9. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. In the beginning of that verse, these are the generations of Noah. That's a, that's a transition. That's an introductory element that we talked about as far as the structure of Genesis and the way that works. And when our author, when, when, when Moses dives into uh, telling us about this man, he dives into the fact that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, and he walked with God. There's something special about this man. You see it play out. But what the question that we're asking here, the question we're answering in our second point is, by what means did Noah become pleasing to God? We read that he found favor with God. He received grace from God. And the next thing we read about him is that he was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Well, we've said that grace was the source of that. That's where it came from was the grace of God. But the question for you and me is more practical. How did he get it? How is that grace received? By what, by what instrument did he receive that grace? Godliness results from justifying grace, but we have a question of how did he get it? How did it become his? Was there a, a specific spiritual path that he was to follow? Certain steps that he was to complete? Or maybe there were certain spiritual disciplines that when he got those in order, he would be a righteous man. What was the path? What was the, the means by which he received that grace? Well, the Bible makes it clear, thirdly, that faith is the means. How did he receive it? It was by faith. It wasn't doing the right things that caused this to happen. It wasn't doing the right things that uh, made it so that he received this grace and thus became a righteous man. It was uh, by faith. And that takes us to Hebrews chapter 11. Of course, you're familiar with Hebrews chapter 11. That's the, the hall of faith there. And we'll see that that is the case here with this man as well. The Bible makes it clear what the means of receiving God's grace really is. How is it that we can have favor with God? Well, faith is the means of receiving that. We turn to Hebrews 11. We read in verse 6, without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. The means by which He acquired that righteousness 
The means by which he became pleasing to God was faith, trusting in God. That's the means by which we are justified is by or through the means of our faith. And this is contrary to the world's teaching. If you pick any religion, the way you can be made right with God will always be the things that you do, the things that you can accomplish. The Bible recognizes that you do not have it within you in your fallenness to accomplish the things that it requires to please God. The only way that we can go from a condition of, of being under God's judgment to being the objects of His wrath to being pleasing to Him is by faith. It's something that He gives. It's not something that we do. There's a doctrinal point here. This is how salvation works. God graciously calls us to Himself. We respond in faith. And we are declared righteous in His sight. And this is a great distinctive about biblical Christianity. It distinguishes Christianity from all other types of religion. And so we see that the means by which He received it is faith. But our question goes beyond that. That in itself is its own sermon. And if we stopped right there, we could all say yes and amen. That we, by faith in Christ, are declared righteous before God. And we could say amen and be done. And we could rejoice in that. And we often do that. And we need to remind ourselves of this truth regularly. This is why we preach the gospel here week after week after week, is to remind ourselves that we have the favor of God by faith. Not because of our list of good things that we've done or a list of bad things that we've avoided. Not by the, the ladder that we've climbed, but by what Christ has accomplished. And that becomes ours purely by faith. But I, I want to look beyond that today. I want to look one step further and apply that to us. I, I also want to show in this time that faith is likewise the means of that righteousness, not only being declared true of us in the courtroom, but becoming practically real and visible in our actions. How is it that that out there, that truth, that reality, how does it how does it become a practical reality in my life? That's what we want to look at. In other words, we want to look at how Noah's righteousness was seen. How did it become visible? It takes us to Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 7. The very beginning of the verse there, we see first of all that he received a warning. By faith, Hebrews 11 verse 7, by faith Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, and then he's going to continue. But I, I want to focus on this for a second, that he was warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, and that was a message that he received. See, he didn't simply hear the message. He believed it. He wasn't simply warned in passing, like, like we're warned regularly. It was something that he heard and that he believed. He received that message. And before we even go on any further, there's a, there's a point of application here for us. We, we meet every Sunday morning. And in Sunday school and in our messages, we, we preach the message, we hear the message, the proclamation of the truth of the gospel, about judgment that is to come and how it is that, that we can have 
uh, deliverance from that judgment and peace with God in Christ. We, we preach that every week. We hear that every week. But the question is, do we receive it? Do we, do we come to church mainly for the emotional highs? I, I would ask, uh, you know, whether we come to church for the entertainment, but I'm not all that entertaining, so I, I'm pretty sure that's not why uh, people are here is for the entertainment. But do we come to church because we want to be emotionally struck in some deep way? Well, there's nothing wrong with being emotionally struck in some deep way. And, and when I read through these things and when I, when I ponder the realities that we're talking about today and I think about my own life and I think about my history and I think about my future and I think about my family, that's deeply emotionally impactful. But do we come to church for that emotional impact? If that were the case, I would change my preaching or we would uh, look for something else in a message. We need to look beyond that. There's something else we're looking for. Some Sundays are emotionally powerful. Other Sundays are not emotionally powerful. That doesn't mean they were less spiritually powerful, just emotionally less so. So what are we looking for? I know uh, perhaps uh, some people come on a Sunday morning, they're looking for intellectual stimulation. When we went to the Moody Church in Chicago, our, our uh, pastor there, uh, Pastor Lutzer, great preacher and, and everything else, and he had a man who would come to church who was an atheist, an avowed atheist, clear about it, but he just loved to listen to Pastor Lutzer. He loved the intellectual stimulation. He just loved, it was like a debate in his head, or I don't know exactly what all motivated him, but it was the intellectual stimulation. He just loved that. And when Pastor Lutzer would talk about more practical issues, he just couldn't be bothered. He didn't really like He wanted to get back to the, the, the debate on this topic or, the, or the, the, the thing that was intriguing this way. Do we come for that? But there's a place for that. And as you look into God's Word and as you study what, uh, what's here, you see that there are things that demand a lot of thought, that require really clear and precise thinking. There are concepts that blow your mind. They're so big. Right? There is intellectual stimulation in the Bible in trying to understand who God is, but that better not be why we're coming so that, so that our, our brains can get some exercise. Now, I hope our brains are exercised, and I hope the things that we discuss are intellectually stimulating, but that's not the purpose for which we come. And if that were the purpose, I would change my preaching, and I would talk only about that. That's not the purpose for which we come. So what is the purpose for which we come? What, what do we come here to receive? We come here to receive God's Word. And sometimes it's incredibly plain and practical, and that is God's Word, and we need to receive it. Sometimes it's a clear presentation of the gospel, and we need not just to think about it, not just to debate with this uh, sentence that was said or something like that, but to receive God's Word. That's a major reason why we are here on Sunday mornings. And when Noah received this warning, when he heard this warning about events as yet unseen, in ways he probably couldn't imagine, he received it. He believed it. He didn't just think about it. It didn't just make him emotionally charged, though I can imagine it did. A statement that the world is going to be judged. 
And I, I can imagine it was, it was emotionally or uh, uh, intellectually stimulating as he was pondering, uh, you know, even the ark itself that he was uh, told to build or as he was thinking about what does judgment mean for all of these other people as he thought about them. I'm sure it was intellectually challenging. But it was the message from God, God's Word to him, and he received it. Okay, this is true. I believe this. So he received the warning, and we need to do the same. When the message is proclaimed, when we open God's Word and have it preached to us, when it's taught to us, when we're reading it, we need to receive it. I know how easy it is to, uh, to go through my checklist. Of, ah, I read my three chapters today. I covered from here to there. Close the book, pray real quick, and I'm done. We need to receive it. This is, this is the Word of God Himself who has spoken to us right here. Let us receive it like Noah received this warning. And how do I know he received it? How do I have such great confidence that he received that in faith? Well, secondly, because he responded. He responded in reverent fear. Look at the second part in verse 7 there. In reverent fear, he constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By, his, by this, he condemned the world. And then it continues. In reverent fear. Now, sometimes we pit fear and faith against one another. We think, well, if I have faith, then I won't have any fear. Well, that's, that, that's not what's going on here. Because sometimes when God tells us things that are frightening and that should cause us to tremble a little bit and prepare for them, our response ought to be fear. If we're believing God's Word, not that we're scared and we run screaming into the night, but that we realize reality as it exists and what I'm to do in, the, in light of that reality, what this means for me. And this is a big and this is a frightening announcement, warning that has been made about what is to come. He responded in reverent fear. And this kind of fear is the result of faith. It's not the opposite. It's the result. If he had no faith, if he didn't believe what God said was true, water off a duck's back. Doesn't bother him at all. There would be no fear connected there. But when he hears what this judgment is going to be and he realizes what it's going to mean for all of his neighbors, when he realizes the things that he's going to have to go through, it causes a reverent fear. It causes him to take it seriously, right down to his toes. So much so that he's willing to construct an ark to build this giant barge that would have taken forever to build. He spends the time that it takes to construct that ark. Why would he do that if he didn't believe God? He believed God. And he took him seriously, and so he constructed the ark. And by doing so, he facilitated the deliverance for his family. Because of what he did, his family and the, and the animals with him survived through the flood. He responded in reverent fear and took action. And by doing so, he, it says he condemned the world. By this, he condemned the world. Now, what does that mean? Well, I don't want to focus on that too much, but, but I think it's important for us to think about in our day and age, his lifestyle, first of all, his lifestyle showed how they ought to have lived. By the way, cynics don't like to be confronted with a consistent Christian lifestyle. 
They love when they find a hypocrite. They love when they can point at your life and say, see? Which, by the way, for you and me, that provides opportunity to say, yes, I'm a hypocrite. I was saved not because I'm a good person, but I've been saved by faith in Christ. He's declared me to be righteous uh, in, in that heavenly courtroom because of what Christ has done. I, I get to be uh, God's child, not because I'm wonderful, not because I am uh, uh, perfect or have it all together, but because of Christ Himself, and I need Him, and you need Him as well. So it's an opportunity for the gospel. But I prefer not to walk around giving out those opportunities all the time, right? A cynic uh, really struggles to see a consistent Christian lifestyle. And in that sense, his life was a condemnation on the people around him. A second sense, his construction of the ark showed that he really believed what he was preaching. He put his money where his mouth was. This wasn't easy for him to construct an ark. It had never been done before. He's got basic instructions on things to do, but he's making it up as he goes. He's inventing woodworking. <laughs> you know, he's, he's in, in boat format, right? It's never been done. He's, he's doing it like it's never been done before, but he's investing his entire life for years because he believed what God said was true. He believed what he was preaching. And thirdly, rather than railing against the coming judgment, he prepared for it. He prepared for that coming judgment. Peter, in 2 Peter 2.5, would say of Noah that he was a preacher of righteousness, a herald of righteousness, which means he wasn't only building an ark. That, that would be full-time employment for decades. He wasn't only doing that, but at the same time, he was preaching to those around him. He was saying, you see me constructing this ark. It's for a reason. It's because judgment's coming, and God has told me how to escape that judgment. And he would call them to repentance as well. But of course, none of them responded. It was only eight people who ended up on the ark. It was only eight people who were delivered through the flood. And so I haven't done an exhaustive research, but it just comes to mind that perhaps Noah is the least successful preacher in all of the Bible. To preach all that time, perhaps a hundred years, and no response. No response. But when the time came, when judgment came, all of that preaching would then testify against them in their own judgment because they heard it again and again and again. They heard the call to repentance. They heard the, the statement that judgment was coming and they refused to respond to it. And that in itself ends up being a testimony against them. But he prepared for the coming judgment he, that he was proclaiming. And when we preach the gospel, we also are heralding the good news of the only way that sinners can have peace with God. And it's a free gift. And we offer it to all. And we urge them to respond in faith. We call them to believe in Christ again and again. We, we urge them to receive it. But when a person does not receive that, when a person dies rejecting that message, all of that gospel proclamation becomes a testimony against them. And you and I, as those who are sharing the gospel, need to be aware of that, need, need to be aware of the gravity of the situation so that the person we're talking to, we try and help them understand that this is the greatest and most important message you could ever receive right now. And your rejection of it will have terrible consequences. You need to believe in Christ 
The stakes are that high. We need to have that kind of gravity when we're speaking to someone. And so we need to be motivated that way. We need to help people to understand the, the gravity of the message we have and to urge them to take this chance to be reconciled to God by faith in Christ. There may not be another chance. So the application today is if you don't know Christ, if you're here and you've heard this proclaimed again and again and you've, you've heard this and you could, you could probably recite it, you could probably tell us what it all is, but take this chance to be reconciled to God by faith in Christ. There will come a time when you will have had your last chance. And if you die in rejection, even in light of that, all of this proclamation of, uh, of the, the, the coming judgment and the way to escape it will, will testify against you. Don't be like Noah's neighbors who ignored his warnings, who ignored his actions, and they ignored the first drops of the rains of judgment as they began to fall. They ignored until it was too late. Don't ignore that message, not for another day. And so we see that when he received the warning, he actually received it. He believed that it was true, and we can tell because he responded in reverent fear. And thirdly, we see that he was revealed through this as righteous. Look at the close there of verse 7 in Hebrews chapter 11. He became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Now, when I read that, he became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. After having described all the things that he went through, having described the construction of the ark, the deliverance of his family, the the judgment of of that generation, and then he became an heir. It sounds like, like this is the last thing tacked on. It sounds like, well, he was obedient all of these times, and the result was he was declared righteous before God. Isn't that great? He earned his way there. He made it happen. It almost sounds like that, but when we think a little bit more deeply about that, we see that that's not the case at all. The first clue that we have is that this righteousness comes by faith. And we've observed in his life that he's had faith all along. That righteousness was there when he had faith. That's the first point we need to make. And secondly, I think we can demonstrate this by looking at Father Abraham. We're going to examine just briefly uh, Abraham and his life, but this comes up a lot in uh, James chapter 2 and verse 21. If you want to turn there for just a moment, you're, you're familiar with it. You've probably got it memorized, James 2, 21. Anytime you're, you're in a gospel conversation uh, with someone who has an LDS background or, uh, uh, or whatever, you will come across this verse. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? That just sounds so different from what Paul says all over the place, that we are justified by faith. We are justified by the grace of God through faith. How can those things be true? What can that mean? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Well, we have discussion there in James chapter 2 that should drive us back to the Old Testament. By the way, when the, when the New Testament is discussing an Old Testament topic or using some kind of imagery or language from the Old Testament, always go back and look at it. 
always go back and see. It will help you understand what's being said in the New Testament. And so we need to do that in this case. When we look at uh, James chapter 2 there, we see reference to Abraham and him being justified by works. Well, when was Abraham declared to be righteous? You see in verse 23 of James chapter 2, the Scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's a quote. You should have quotes around that in your Bible. Perhaps if you've got the uh, kind of Bible, it'll be all in caps or it'll be set apart or something. It's indicating that it's a quote from the Old Testament. Where does that come from? That quote in the Old Testament. Well, as you, as you look down, I've got the, the little letter there and it takes me to the bottom and, and I see that it takes me back to Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6. So keep your hand there in uh, James chapter 2. Go back to Genesis 15. It's kind of getting ahead of us in our story here, but it's important for the point that we're making even now in Genesis chapter 6. We see in Genesis 15 and verse 6, he, that is Abraham, believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now that's in chapter 15 of Genesis. If you think back to what I just read from James chapter 2, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? So it uses a quote from 15.6, and it talks about the sacrificing of Isaac upon the altar. When did that happen? Before or after Genesis 15? Well, basic Bible quiz, where, does, uh, where do we have the account of Abraham and, and uh, the sacrifice of Isaac? It's in Genesis 22. Genesis 22. So how is it that we have James chapter 2 and verse 21 and verse 23 of James chapter 2 referring to, quoting from Genesis 15 and verse 6 and yet saying Abraham was justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac. He was declared to be just by faith in Genesis 15 and he offered up Isaac in Genesis 22. We've talked about this before, but it's important for us to understand what's going on, and we're not going to dig into it all that deeply at this point in our conversation. But here's the point that I want us uh, to take away at this time. He was declared to be righteous by faith in chapter 15. He believed what God had said. He believed the promises of God. He received them by faith, and the statement was made about him that he was declared to be righteous at that point. By faith. Well, God knows that. God has made that declaration, but you and I don't have access to, to that courtroom. We don't get to read the transcript uh, where that happened. And we have the promise now in our Scripture. But at the time, when someone declares they have faith in Christ, right? It's not that we disbelieve them. It's not that we say, no, you don't. I'm not going to believe it until I see it. Right? We don't do that. But when was it that this faith was made visible? When do the rest of us get to see that Abraham really believed God? Well, the greatest moment was when God called him to offer up Isaac. And he said, yes, Lord. And he went and did it. You see, he believed the promise of God. And he obeyed the command of God. And as a result, you and I looking on, or all the people watching him, all of us on a, a horizontal level looking at him can see he really does believe God. 
and he is justified or he is evidently justified. We get to see that he is righteous in his life. It becomes revealed to us when that happens by his obedience later on. He was justified in 15.6. And had he died in 15.7, he would have been right with God. But it becomes visible. It becomes confirmed for the rest of us when he responds in obedience. And so what we see happening there with Abraham and with Isaac is exactly what we see happening here. That in the end of Hebrews chapter 11, go ahead and turn back there. Hebrews chapter 11, the close of verse 7 there says, and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. I think this is the same kind of statement being made, just like in James chapter 2. We can look and see the faith of Noah, not just because the Bible says Noah had faith. That's testimony enough. But we can see it by how he responded to what God had said. He received a warning. And in reverent fear, he responded. And he constructed the ark. He delivered his family. And through all of that, it ends up being the judgment upon the nation around him. Noah had received God's warning. And because he believed God and what God had said, he responded in this reverent fear. He built the ark. That is how the reality of his saving faith was revealed in holy obedience. The internal reality that you and I can't see became evident in his life. It's obvious for everyone who ever lived after Noah. It's obvious to uh, uh, Ezekiel when he's referring to the three holiest men he can think of. It's actually God speaking there. Daniel, Job, Noah. It's evident. It's evident. So we have the same thing happening in Hebrews 11 with him that he becomes or he evidences, he, he shows the reality of the fact that he is the heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So that brings us to our question. How can you grow in personal holiness? How can you grow in personal holiness? We've talked already about how you can have peace with God. We've talked about the fact that you don't don't, uh, achieve God's smile by the things that you do to earn favor with God. We've talked about the fact that the only way we can have peace with God is is, uh, by faith in Christ. Through what Christ has accomplished, that's that's the only way and that's the full way. For us to have peace with God, for us to have God's favor. But when that happens, our heart is changed and we suddenly want to live a righteous life. We suddenly don't want to live the way we used to live. We we want to do things that are honoring to God. We want our character to come more and more into conformity to His character. So how do we do that? How can we grow in personal holiness? Well, first of all, you start by faith. You start by faith. Recognizing this reality about justification, you start by faith. Step one. Step two, you continue by faith. You believe God when He says in His Word that 
everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. When he says that to all who receive Jesus, who believe in his name, he gives the right to become children of God. And that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. You believe all these things, that they are true and that they are true for you, and you respond in reverent fear. This is reality. This is true for me. And so I respond in reverent fear. And you step out in faith and you step out in hope because he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And you seek to obey. You step out, believing God, and you seek to obey. And God, by His grace and through the empowering of the Holy Spirit, will sanctify you as you begin to see that holiness that's true uh, about you in the heavenly courtroom lived out practically in your life. You believe God and you seek to obey. Now you want to. Before faith in Christ, you didn't want to. Yeah, you might want the rewards. I mean, you want, you want uh, heaven and not hell. You want good things in life and not bad things. You want the rewards, and so, yeah, you have a certain motivation. But you don't have any motivation to obey God for God's sake. When you come to Christ, you receive a new heart, and suddenly you want to obey God for God's sake. Not for what you can get out of it, but He's your Father. He's your Redeemer. You, you, you want to honor Him with your life. And so you step out and you seek to do it. And guess what? He helps you. And you find that you're able to obey where uh, yesterday or before faith in Christ or you weren't able to. But guess what else? You're going to fall flat on your face sometimes. At that moment, you realize, I still need the grace of God at work in my life. I still need God's forgiveness, and there it is. I confess my sin to Him. I tried to obey. I disobeyed. That was sin. I'm sorry. And we receive forgiveness. And we receive a new empowering to step out and seek to obey again. And as we're doing this, we're growing. We, we see that God is at work sanctifying us through this whole process. Because we are believing God at every step of the way. And the grace of God is at work in our lives every step of the way. This is what Paul testified to, by the way, in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 10. Many of you know this verse too. By the grace of God, I am what I am, says Paul. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Paul would point us back. All the times Paul calls us to obedience, and he does it again and again. He does so in light of faith. He calls us to faith. He educates our faith. He tells us what God has promised. He tells us what God is doing, what God has done, and what God will do. And then he says, obey. And you fall flat, and you remind yourself of all of those things. That's what Paul himself did. He said that I worked harder than any of them, and the it was not I, it was the grace of God with me. And by those means, God sanctifies us. By those means, we begin to see a change in our very lives. Noah was a very, very unusual person. He lived in a day when evil was rampant on the earth and godliness was in short supply. He was a unique 
man. But even in that kind of environment, with all of that evil, he was a righteous man. He was blameless in his generation. He was a man who walked with God. And he was such a man, ultimately, because he had uh, the benefit, he had received the grace of God, the favor of God in his life. God had chosen him and placed his good hand upon him. And Noah actually believed what God told him. The reverent fear he felt when God warned him of the coming floodwaters was rooted in faith, not contrary to it. It was rooted in faith because he believed that God was who he said he was and would do what he said he would do. He believed God. Noah took God's word seriously and he responded accordingly. And because he acted on this faith and he built the ark for himself and his family and all the animals, they were delivered through the flood. You see the result. Noah was a righteous man because he believed God and his word. He believed God's word was reality, and so he acted accordingly. And his faith carried him through all those years of labor in building the ark with no water in sight and probably no understanding of what rain was and probably with a crowd of naysayers around him calling him names for wasting his life. The grace of God which was received by faith, carried him through and showed itself in a righteousness that became visible on the outside as well. How can I be righteous? How can you be righteous? Respond to the grace of God by faith. Believe God and believe what He says in His Word and respond accordingly. Let's pray. Father, as we have looked at this very great man, Noah, we're amazed still at his life. We're amazed at what he was able to do, that, that uh, he had so little evidence uh, probably of the reality of this coming judgment. He had your word to him. He had you telling him that it was coming. And his life was patterned. The rest of his life, the rest of his family, everything was patterned based upon responding in truth to that message. Father, I, I want that to be true of me as well and each of us here that we would hear the warnings and the promises and the blessings and the instructions and the truths in Your Word that we would believe them, that we would believe they are true, not just give some mental assent but right down to our toes such that it responds, it causes a response in, a, in us of a reverent fear that we then act in light of what your word says, that we would truly receive what your word says. That that would become the pattern of our lives, that we would know peace with you by faith in Christ. And because your word says that is true, that even in times when my own heart is uneasy. Even in times when, when I begin to wonder that I will look and see Christ is faithful. And by faith in Him, I have peace with you. The times when I'm tempted to go another way in my life, to go after some sin, to give in to some temptation, to invest in, in, uh, in some... Uh, 
something that's displeasing and dishonoring to you that at that moment that I remember what you have told us in your word, the warnings, the promises, the blessings, that I would remember Jesus in that moment and that you by your grace would work in my life that you, by your grace, would continue to sanctify me, to sanctify us. That the truths of that statement made in the heavenly courtroom about us being declared righteous would show itself in our behavior, would begin to show itself more and more as a reality, a practical reality seen in our lives. That we would grow in this way, not because we white-knuckle it, but because of the grace of God at work within us. So, Father, I pray that you would minister to your people this morning. We are grateful that you do not give up on us. We are grateful that you do not just give us a list of things to do, a ladder to climb, a path to follow, things to accomplish, and we will be right with you. You sent us your Son who has accomplished righteousness who has died in my place to pay the penalty for my sins. His righteousness is given to me, and because of that, I have peace with you. And anyone who has faith in Christ has become a child of God, having peace with you in Jesus as well. Encourage us with these words. Help us with these words. Minister to us from your word, even today and in this week in our work, in our families, in public and in private. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to have a family who will be up front to pray with you if you want to come and pray with them. They love that ministry. They love to pray for you. If you are a child and you've finished the blast zone, Mrs. Beheimer is going to be over here to check that with you. I want to close with these words of Paul from Romans chapter 8 that are familiar to us and always encouraging. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. God bless you all, and you are dismissed.